Well, good morning. Welcome to Liberty Heights Church, man. I'm so excited you're here today. I got some new technology that I'm trying to figure out. So uh, it's either going to be a really good day or a really bad day. If I can get to my notes real quickly. But hey, here we are in week 10. Can you believe it? Week 10 of the series Beautiful Mess. And uh, we've said almost every single week that the main problem plaguing the church at Corinth was um, that they couldn't keep the godless practices and the pagan practices from creeping into their church culture. And so the culture uh, surrounding them was creeping into the church, and it's no different in the problem that we're going to face today, and the problem was sexual immorality and promiscuity. It become rampant in this congregation Now, I have to step back and give a little uh, disclaimer really quickly this morning because I'm married to um, the children's ministry director and she read the sermon and said, you got to give everybody fair warning of what's about to come. So the problem that was plaguing uh, the church was they were involved in a very culturally loose uh, city and what was going on within the city was X-rated. What was taking place within the church was at least R-rated, and Paul's response to the church was at the very least uh, PG-13. And so we want you to be aware of that this morning. Uh, You may choose to take advantage of our children's ministry if you're in here uh, with a little one. We just want to give you just a second. If you haven't had that conversation yet, I'm going to be using some words today that they might ask you about at lunch. So uh, fair warning. Well, uh, just uh, quickly to back up, some of you uh, have never met me. We have an opportunity uh, to maybe meet each other today for the first time. My name is Pastor Chris. I'm the teaching pastor at our Lebanon campus, and uh, excited to be back with you this morning. Pastor Brad is teaching in Lebanon uh, this morning. Uh, Some of you have asked, many of you have asked this morning, how's it going up there? It's going well. Um, God is doing some great things, and we would invite you to come and check out what's happening up there. Uh, Every time I come back, I invite you to come and participate in what's going on up there. Uh, We say this often, we love to have bodies in the room, right? That sounds so unspiritual and uh, so untheological, but the fact of the matter is we have a room up there that holds about 150, and it just feels better when there's more bodies in it. Worship is better. The preaching is better. And so we would ask you to come. Uh, Honestly, guests like coming to a full room And so if you could come, if you're not serving on any particular week here, uh, we would love, it's 10 and a half miles, it's about 15 or 20 miles, uh, minutes from this campus, and we would love for you to be our guest up there, okay? Well, there was uh, enough time for you to react. Let's go ahead and jump into uh, what was happening here in Corinth. In week one, we learned in Corinth that uh, the culture of Corinth, the city of Corinth, was synonymous with the worship of sex. In fact, the verb to Corinthianize literally means to employ the services of a prostitute. And in this city, it wasn't just any prostitute, it was a temple prostitute. That's how attached Corinth was to that kind of life. And the Corinthians had rationalized their sexual activity just like people do today. Plenty of people in the name of religion, in the name of freedom, uh, freedom of Christ, were free God wants us to be happy. What's the big deal? So let's live it up. On the other hand, there was another argument that was uh, facing Paul. And their other argument, and we hear this one all the time, what's the big deal about sex? It's only uh, biology. It's only a biological act. It's only physical. You don't get upset about the sex life of animals. Why do you get so uptight about mine? That's what people say. What's the big deal? And so evidently the Christian church 
in Corinth was arguing with Paul, like, hey, our environment is so overwhelming. And man, we've, we've figured this out theologically, right? And now philosophically, it's just a biological act. Why such a fuss? So I'm going to ask you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to be in the second half of that chapter today. And Paul is going to pick apart their rationalization. And he's going to give us three clear principles of why sexual sin must be excluded from the Christian life in a message titled, You Are Not Your Own. Now we're going to pick up in verse 12. Somebody caught this in the first service that we have skipped over uh, about three verses. And we're going to come back to those. And we said a couple weeks ago we preached through the hard passages. Um, It just makes a little more sense and you'll see why. That we're going to drop back and we're still going to hit that uh, passage, the preceding verses. But let's jump in today uh, to verse 12. And Paul writes this. He says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and stomach for the food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the body and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never! Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Well, Paul launches right in, picking apart their argument. And the very first principle that we see that Paul makes this morning, the point that he makes, is that sexual sin causes great harm. We see this immediately in verse 12. He says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. So this statement, all things are lawful, this was more than likely a common Corinthian uh, saying in this liberated society. And Paul borrows this and plays off of it by saying, you're right, in Christ, all things are lawful. Every sin that I could commit is covered by God's grace. But he also says that just because it's covered by God's grace doesn't make it good, doesn't make it right. No sin ever produces anything good, anything right. He says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. Now in this morning's passage, there's lots of application, but contextually he's not talking about any sin. He's specifically talking about sin that is sexual in nature. Listen, sexual sin is not outside the scope of God's forgiveness. But I would challenge you this morning that there's no other sin that consistently has as long-lasting and a series of life-altering consequences as that of sexual sin. read this week from a commentary, and this is what the commentary wrote. It kind of um, shook me a little bit. He said, no sin that a person commits has more built-in pitfalls, more problems, and more destructiveness than sexual sin. He says it's broken more marriages, it's shattered more homes, caused more heartache and disease, and destroyed more lives than alcohol and drugs combined. It causes lying, stealing, cheating, and killing, as well as bitterness, hatred, slander, gossip, and unforgiveness. Sexual sin causes great harm. 
Now to be clear here this morning, Paul is not saying that our enjoyment of our sexuality is always wrong. He's not saying that God is against sex. In fact, quite the opposite. God created it, blessed it when used exclusively within marriage as the Lord intends. Our sexuality is a beautiful gift to be enjoyed. Scripture says in Proverbs chapter 5, Rejoice in the wife of your youth. Be exhilarated always with her love. Now I have to admit that Pastor Brad says something here often, and it always makes me cringe when he says it. That's what he says. If you're sinning and not having fun, then you're doing it wrong. And every time he says that, I'm like, man, it sounds a little sacrilegious. Like, should you really be saying that? But the truth of this statement that he makes is actually rooted in Scripture. Listen to what the author of Proverbs uh, says about sexual relations outside of marriage. In Proverbs chapter 9, uh, the author says, Stolen water is sweet, and food eaten in secret is delicious. See, your pastor is not such a pagan after all. Sin, especially sexual sin, can be fun and it feels good. But listen to the rest of this verse. The very next verse says, But little do they know that the dead are there, talking about the house of the seductress that her guests are deep in the realm of the dead. In other words, forbidden fruits always seem sweeter. It's always more exciting, these things that are done in secret because of their risk and because of the danger. But Paul says, listen, sexual sin is never profitable. It's always harmful. We see from the story of King David in the Old Testament that adultery, we see that murder, they are forgivable sins. The Lord can take away and forgive those sins. He can take away and forgive your sin, but he doesn't usually take away the natural consequences of that sin. Grace is high. Grace is free, rather. The cost of sin is high. Grace is free. The cost of sin is high. Stated earlier, the collateral damage from sexual sin is always significant. Sexual sin causes great harm. Second point that Paul makes still in verse 12, is that sexual sin controls us like no other sin. Second half of this verse, all things, again, are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Listen, Paul understood that he was free in the grace of Christ to do as he pleased, but he was not going to be mastered by anything or anyone but Christ. He wasn't going to let any custom or any habit, he wasn't going to become enslaved to it, and certainly not to any sin. And in the church here, the Christians were boasting of their Christian freedom when Paul says, listen, you're really just controlled by your own sinful, fleshly desires. Listen, no sin is more enslaving than sexual sin. The more it's indulged, the more it controls. I've encountered more than just a few people that have fallen into and given into sexual temptation. And in almost almost every single instance... Their testimony is that it, became, it began with something small, a small indiscretion, a prolonged hug, an inappropriate comment, an off-color joke, an innocent brushing of hands, an extended glance that was noticed. And they will tell you that this thing that started out as something small continued to snowball until it ended in sexual sin. The author in Psalms chapter 1 verse 1 writes of this exact progression of sin. He says, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor sit in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. He doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the path of sinners, or sit in the seat of scoffers. This week I heard a pastor 
In his message, he said that very few people deliberately jump into hell. Like, I don't know very many people that have purposely taken the plunge. But what happens is they, they stand around it long enough and they begin to um, get comfortable with it. And they associate with it. And then pretty soon they tolerate it. And then before you know it, they're participating in it and fall over the edge of the cliff. And just like every other sin that we don't resist, sexual sin will grow and eventually corrupt and destroy. Not only the people that are doing it, but a lot of innocent victims, as we've said earlier. And so speaking to these people whose flesh was controlling them, Paul says at the end of verse 12, I will not be dominated by anything. Sexual sin not only harms us, not only controls us, but Paul goes on to argue that sexual sin perverts God's plan for our bodies. First, Paul says that our bodies are for the Lord. Look at verse 13 and 14. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body's not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Now this can be a little confusing, so let me explain. Food and the stomach were created by God for each other. Their relationship is purely biological. It's a linear, horizontal relationship. One exists for the other. And the Corinthians were using this truth to justify their sexual immorality by saying, listen, sex is no different from eating. The stomach was made for food, and the body was made for sex. But Paul stops him short. He says, listen, it's true that food and the stomach were made for each other, but it's also true that the relationship is purely temporal. In other words, one day we as Christians are going to be given glorified bodies. And at that time we'll have no need for our stomachs, and therefore we'll have no need for food. That's what Paul means when he says God will destroy both. Now listen, this makes me a little sad to think there won't be a little Caesars in heaven. But I'm also comforted by the fact that that means I'll never have to look at another pickle for the rest of eternity. Paul goes on to say that the bodies of believers are designed for so much more than biological functions. He says our bodies are designed for uh, not only this life, but also to be our bodies throughout eternity. Now, listen, some of you, that freaks you out because your current situation, you're barely hanging on for dear life with your body, right? I've seen some of your bodies. But listen, it's a little scary to think that uh, our body is going to be with us in eternity. But here's the good news. It's going to be a changed body, a resurrected body, a heavenly body. Now, I hope mine has hair, but they will be our bodies, Paul was talking to us today, he would say, listen, your bodies are so much more than a random clump of cells. You have a spiritual existence in your relationship with your heavenly Father, and therefore your bodies belong to God, and at some point God's going to, in his glory, raise you from the dead. He's going to take your body to eternity, and that's the body that you will use to exalt the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Such an amazing truth. Our bodies are for the Lord. But then Paul kicks things up a notch by saying not only our bodies for the Lord, our bodies are members of Christ. Look at verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. 
Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Do you not know, Paul writes, that your bodies are members of Christ? This is a crazy thought for us to wrap our minds around. Paul's saying that not only are your bodies for the Lord now and in the future, but they're also of the Lord. He's literally saying that our bodies are part of the Lord's own body. Ephesians 1, it reminds us that Christ is the head of the church and that those uh, in the church, it says that we are Christ's body. Paul wrote this in Romans 12, verse 5. He said that um, we who are many, referring to the church, are one body in Christ. In other words, we are the living, spiritual temple in which Christ lives. We are his body. Paul's literally saying that when we as Christians use our body to engage in fornication, that we're taking the personal property of Jesus Christ himself and using it to sin. In fact, Paul says this is the equivalent of making Christ himself commit prostitution. And to use a part of Christ's own body in an act of fornication should be incomprehensible. It should be uh, irreconcilable to every believer. And Paul says, may it never be. Paul goes on to quote Jesus in Matthew 19, Mark 10. We actually was quoting Genesis 2. Jesus said the two will become one flesh. Paul's saying that when a husband and wife enter into a sexual relationship, really, when anybody enters into a sexual relationship, there's a spiritual bond. One flesh is established between them that's designed to be eternally enjoyed. Contrast that with what the world says. It says that sex uh, is only what touches us at a physical level. That's what the modern uh, sexual movements are telling us. But this uh, passage teaches us that for believers, uh, sexual activity goes well beyond the physical into the spiritual. And that it's not just something superficial and physical between two people. But that sexual intimacy takes place on a spiritual level. That we're one flesh. We become one flesh with each other. And if we're believers, we're also one flesh with the Lord. So remember now, this passage was written to believers. The context is believers here. And Paul's saying that when we as believers are involved in sexual sin, that we're putting Christ into an unthinkable position. And listen, Christ is not personally tainted uh, by our sin, but his reputation is dirtied because of the association. Paul's still not done. He takes things to yet another level. Not only are our bodies the Lord's, not only are they members of Christ, but now he argues that our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. In verse 19, he puts a little sting in this verse by framing it uh, as a sarcastic question. He says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. As Christians, Paul says, our bodies are not our own. As believers, we understand that when uh, we're converted upon conversion, when we accept Christ in faith, that through his grace, the Holy Spirit has been given to us at conversion. Our bodies become the sanctuary of the Holy Spirit. Do you remember where the Holy Spirit uh, or God's presence resided prior to Jesus coming on the scene? the Old Testament temple. 
In fact, not just in the temple, it was in the Holy of Holies, a specific room within the temple. God residing in an actual temple, that's so Old Testament. Because now we live under the new covenant, that we have now replaced that Old Testament uh, temple. We are God's temple. You and I have replaced the temple. That's why we don't call this room the sanctuary. When I was growing up, we called uh, our worship center the, the sanctuary, but we don't call it that on purpose intentionally because it's not the sanctuary. It's not where God resides. God resides inside of us. This is what makes us so unique from the animal kingdom. We're spiritual beings, and for believers, the Holy Spirit resides within us, and therefore we're intimately related to his greatness and his majesty and his glory. Now listen, it would be disgusting to hear of somebody committing sexual sin inside this auditorium, but it would be no more disgusting, no less disgusting. It would be equally as disgusting that they would do this sin anywhere else because Christians' bodies are God's temple, and a temple is for worship. You are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God with your body. If you're listening, punch your neighbor and say, wake up. You are not your own. For you are bought with a price, a great price. So glorify God with your body. And the reality of this truth should give us as great of a commitment to purity as any other divine truth in all of Scripture. So here's the good news this morning. We just made it through the deep end. Okay, that was the, that was the deep stuff. That was the deep water. Couldn't touch bottom there. Now here's the good news. If you look on your notes at the bottom uh, of the page of notes that it used to be, I think it's still there, uh, that if you want to get a message of this uh, manuscript, you can, uh, there's an email address that you can request it through because some of you need to probably take this back and spend a little more time because we walked through it so fast and your mind, if it's like mine, uh, probably needs to slow it down just a little bit. But we ran through that real quickly because not only do we want to stand on the authority and the sufficiency of Scripture, we also want to turn the question and say, okay, in light of these truths, how now shall we live? There's this t-shirt that came out a couple years ago and it said, don't lead me into temptation because I can find it myself. The fact of the matter is, is that sadly some people come to Christ and they think that following Christ is the end of temptation. But the reality is actually that following Christ invites temptation. And if you've been a Christian for a while, you know this to be true. So let's spend the rest of our time this morning answering this question, how do we battle temptation? A couple years ago, in fact, I think it was in 2014 or 2015, uh, we preached a message uh, through Genesis and the story of Joseph And a lot of these principles came from that message, and so we're regurgitating some of this truth this morning, but that's okay. Uh, The first uh, thing that we do, the first principle that we do when we battle temptation is to maximize the consequences. When you're tempted as a Christian, think about somebody other than yourself when you're facing temptation. Are you really willing to wound your mate? Are you really willing to betray your kids? and your family, to disappoint so many people that believe in you. See, what you're really saying when you have an affair is this, that I matter more than anybody else. My feelings are all that matter. So I was reading the story of Joseph this week in Genesis 39. Joseph was a godly young man. 
happened to be a really good-looking dude. He was also a Jewish slave, and he was in this house under his master, and his master's wife had the hots for him. It's just the truth of the matter. And she didn't come on to him subtly. She told him specifically of her intentions. Listen how Joseph maximized the consequences when she was point blank telling him what she thought they should do. He said, I can't do this to my master. My master has put me in charge of everything that he owns. His property, his money, his house, everything but you. How could I do this and sin against my master? He was maximizing the consequences of hurting someone who had done so much for him. Can I speak to you directly today if you are perhaps battling the greatest temptation of your life? Here's a suggestion. Go home, get a note card. Maybe you're a guy that's the size of a note card that you could fit in your wallet. And write down every single possible consequence if you were to give in to that temptation. For me, at the top of that list, I believe that's a disqualifying sin for a pastor. Lose your job. We're going to go through this exercise if you're part of a life group. In our sermon discussion this week, we're going to ask you as a group just to write out all the consequences, possible consequences, consequences of sexual sin. and Put that in your pocket. And then when you're tempted, when you're facing the temptation at its greatest, pull that out and be reminded of the consequences. As we said over and over this morning, sexual sin can be so damaging. Yes, it is forgivable. It is a forgivable sin. But here's the deal. When forgiveness is extended, often the consequences of sin are still not erased. And so maximize the consequences. Sticking with the story of Joseph, after he said he couldn't sin against his boss... Listen, else, listen to what else he said in Genesis 39.9. He says, not only can I not do this against my boss, I can't do this thing and sin against God. That leads us to the second principle this morning, to realize that sin never happens, it never takes place, it never occurs in a vacuum. I've heard this excuse a hundred times, especially from people that are battling pornography. I'm not hurting anyone. Listen, you're breaking the heart of your heavenly Father every time you choose to sin over remaining pure. There's no such thing as a sin that takes place in a vacuum. All sin is sin against God. Resisting temptation, it's a day-by-day, it's a moment-by-moment choice that declares whatever God has for me is better than the temporary pleasure that sin is offering How many of us have learned this the hard way and have had to limp back to the heavenly Father Many of us have also had to learn hard, the hard way, the old saying that sin will take you further than you wanted to go. It will cost you more than you wanted to pay and it will keep you there longer than you had planned to stay. Earlier I mentioned King David and the sins that he committed. Man, they were heinous sins. He betrayed his general. He stole the man's wife. He had an affair with her. He got her pregnant. He ends up killing the general. He marries this woman. Over a long period of time, David is called to a place of repentance. 
And he finally came to that place and he experienced the grace and forgiveness that can only come from God. And in that time, he wrote this beautiful song. It's recorded in Psalm 51. And he says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgression, for against you only have I sinned and have done evil in your sight. Listen, the list of people that David had sinned against is a long list. This woman, her husband, an entire army. It says as a consequence of his sin later on that in one single day in battle, 23,000 men lost their lives. David sinned against his family. He sinned against the nation he was responsible to lead. And yet what grieved him most was the fact that he had sinned against a holy and a righteous God. Sin never takes place in a vacuum. We jump back to the story of Joseph for this next principle. We read in Genesis 39.10 that Joseph refused to even be with her. Joseph realized that if he was to battle uh, against the sin of adultery, the, the temptation, then he needed to set up some safeguards. That's our third principle this morning. He realized that he had to limit his time being alone with this woman. There's an old saying that says, if you don't intend to go in the house, then don't hang out in the front porch. Like, don't see how close you can get to the edge of the cliff. Don't flirt with it. Joseph predetermined he could not be alone with his boss's wife. A few years ago, Mike Pence, our vice president, revealed to the press how he observes the Billy Graham rule. The Billy Graham rule, Billy Graham was known to never be alone in an office or a car or a meeting or a woman, and never with another woman alone other than his wife Ruth. And when the press got wind of the fact that that's the Billy Graham rule that uh, Mike Pence follows, they absolutely ridiculed him, tore him apart for being so puritanical. And then comes the Me Too movement. And all these leaders and all these politicians are come crashing down and all of a sudden Mike Pence looks pretty smart. Remember back in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27, that God chose what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. And as old-fashioned as it seems, we need to set up safeguards in our lives. None of our pastors will ever ride in a car alone with another woman. We'll never engage in long-term counseling with a woman. We, we might do short-term counseling, but even then the door is left open. There's always somebody in the room next door, always. We do not violate that principle. A couple years ago, Pastor Brad literally had me tear out his door and we replaced it with a full glass door. That's how committed we are to these principles. It's a safeguard that he set in place. If you're being counseled and you don't feel comfortable with that lack of privacy, even though we uh, honor uh, your confidentiality, uh, but if you don't feel comfortable, then we'll do everything in our power to find a female counselor that can uh, counsel you. We'll even pay for a female counselor uh, to meet with you. That's how strongly we hold to these principles. Because we understand that if you intentionally walk into the zone of temptation, you forfeit the right to ask for God's help. And so set up some safeguards in your own life. So back to Joseph, this poor guy couldn't catch a break. And despite his best efforts to set up these safeguards, his boss's wife, his master's wife, suddenly takes things to another level. Let me read you Genesis 39, verses 11 and 12. One day... 
Joseph went into the house to do his work, and none of the other men were there in the house when he was there. And she caught him by the garment, despite his safeguards. She caught him by surprise, saying, lie with me. She said, come to bed with me. No one will ever know. But it says he, it left, he left his garment in her hand, and he fled and got out of the house. I don't know if you're familiar with the uh, armor of God. Ephesians chapter 6, Paul talks about this. He talks about the weapons that we have from God's word uh, to battle against sin. And he uh, compares those weapons that we have to armor. And so in that arsenal, we have the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit. And Paul says to put all these things on and then stand firm. Apostle James echoes these thoughts in James chapter 4, verse 7. He says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. But do you know how the Bible instructs us to fight sexual temptation? It's in our text this morning in verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. So that's our next and final point this morning. Final principle is to run from temptation. That's exactly what Joseph did. He ran. He literally left his boss's wife standing there holding his coat. And that's exactly what Paul told the Corinthians to do. Why does God tell us to run from sexual temptation? Because God knows that in the face of sexual temptation, if the decision is delayed, that passion will override our will. And passion is never rational, it's never sensible, and in sexually dangerous situations, it leaves us with one option, and that is to run. A reporter asked an African safari guide, he says, is it true if I carry a torch that ferocious wild animals won't bother me? And the guide answered, it depends on how fast you can carry the torch. And it's not true that you can get baptized and join the church and carry a big Bible and that Satan will leave you alone. It depends on how fast you can run. And sometimes the flames of passion are so intense that you need to run before they're ever ignited. And so that might mean that you quit going to that restaurant. It might mean that you ask for a job transfer. It might mean that you look for a different coworker or you look uh, for a different assistant or a different boss. You get out of that singing group. You cancel that subscription. Whatever garment you have to leave behind, it's worth your integrity, it's worth your family, and it's worth your eternity to do so. Closing this morning, I want you to understand that God's standards are permanent even in Corinth. Corinth, where in a city there was a temple that stood up on the hill behind them, and at night a thousand prostitutes would come out of that temple and come down and ply their trade in the streets. Even in Corinth, God's standards are permanent. God's morals don't change with culture. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so God's standards don't change here in America just because our culture is loose. I wish I had more time to explain uh, this next Statement that temptation is normal. It's not sinful. Don't let Satan accuse you of sin here. Temptation and desire are not the sin. The sin is yielding to the desire. And so don't let Satan battle you on that. And finally, the rewards for faithfulness are enormous. But they're not always immediate. 
In Joseph's case, he was falsely accused of rape. He was thrown into a rat-infested prison for two years before he was vindicated, before his name was cleared, before he went on to change the world. He sat in the prison for two years. Doing the right thing doesn't mean that immediately there's going to be romance in your marriage. It doesn't mean that there's going to be a white horse that comes riding around the corner carrying Prince Charming. You say, well, Chris, doesn't the Bible say that we reap what we sow? And so, isn't God going to honor us? Yes, we do reap what we sow, but often there's a long period of time between the sowing and the reaping. And so for those of you today who are tired, you're trying to remain faithful, but it's hard. Listen to what the Bible promises. Paul wrote this in Galatians chapter 6, verse 9. He says, let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time, We will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Church, there's too much at stake this morning. And so let's commit this morning to never give up on this fight to remain pure. Would you bow your heads with me this morning as we take some time to reflect on these truths? You know, as I was studying this week, I was cognizant of the fact that well, there's many people in this room this morning battling temptation. I'm also aware of the fact that more than likely there's some people in this room that have fallen to this temptation and have acted on it. So let me, let me speak to you for just a minute, quickly. This week in a seminary class that I'm taking, we're kind of studying Satan and the different tactics that he has. And his first tactic is that he is a deceiver. Did God really say that? You're not hurting anybody. What's the big deal? And then when we fall prey to that temptation and we sin, Satan then turns into an accuser. I can't believe that you did that. You call yourself a Christian. You call yourself a Christ follower. There's no way that God can forgive that. And so let me start this morning by saying that God's grace and forgiveness are real. There's more people in this room that have experienced than you think. I look out this morning and I see faces whose testimony is that they are known more for their grace and forgiveness that God has given than their, the sin in their life. Praise God for that. But this morning there is forgiveness. It involves repentance. It involves confessing, God, I understand that I've been wrong in doing this. And now I repent and I turn and walk the other way. For some of you this morning, you say, man, this fight is impossible. I can't seem to gain any ground on it. Perhaps for you, it could be that the Holy Spirit doesn't reside in you. And that's because you've never actually asked Christ to forgive you of your sins. So therefore, the Holy Spirit doesn't dwell inside of you. This morning, I invite you to accept Jesus Christ, the grace and forgiveness he gives you, and the Holy Spirit that empowers you to do all things through Christ. I want to pray for our students this morning. I can't even imagine the battle that you face every day in the world of temptation. The sensual images that come, that bombard you, are overwhelming. I don't know how you do it. I want to pray for you this morning. You can remain pure. 
You can be salt and light in your public high school. Let's use the mirror of Scripture this morning and hold it up to our lives. Let it do surgery on our hearts. Let's confess. Let's repent. And let's ask for the grace that God gave Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He said, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made known through your weakness. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. God, this morning we come before you. We come on bended knee, with humble hearts. And we confess to you the areas in our lives where we've not lived up to the very standard that Jesus has given us of holiness. And for some today we confess sexual sin. For some today we confess sins of pride and anger. But God, we confess to you. And now through the power of the Holy Spirit, would you give us the strength to turn and to run and to flee from the sin or from the temptation of sexual sin. God, I pray for those that need to experience your forgiveness and need to remember the grace that has covered them and that they they need to reconcile that and to remind Satan that they've been forgiven, that their sin has been removed as far as the east is from the west. I'm grateful for that promise this morning. God, I pray for people this morning that are in this room that don't know you, that have never asked you for the forgiveness of their sins. Pray even this morning that you would create a longing in their hearts, that you would draw them to you, that you would reconcile them unto yourself. God, I pray that our testimony would be that your grace and your forgiveness is greater than anything in our lives that we could have done wrong. I thank you for the promise that Paul gives us in Philippians chapter 4 that I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. God, I pray tomorrow we'll look more like Jesus Christ than we do today because of the truths that we've encountered this morning. Cover us with your grace. Cover our children. Cover our spouses. Cover our friends and family with your grace and protection this morning. Pray all of this in the strong name, the matchless name of Jesus who gives us our strength. We pray this in his name. Amen.